Chapter 9 of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter 9 In a Haymow Below Zero. In the first lighted house there was a woman who would not open to me. Modestine was led away by a layman to the stables, and I and my pack were received into Our Lady of the Snows. Travels with a Donkey Having been directed on the road to Pittsford, a town seven miles beyond, we tramped wearily on, battling with the elements as best we could until midnight, when almost numb with cold I resolved to seek refuge in a small hamlet we were nearing called Bushnell Basin. I was told it contained a tavern which would accommodate us in an emergency, but it was so dark when we reached Bushnell that I could not see the basin. Its dozen dusky-looking shanties seemed to be deserted, and when I saw a boy crossing the road I was too surprised to hail him. Mac brayed, and the lad stopped. I asked him where the hotel was. He directed me toward a dim light, and disappeared. We pushed on, but the light was extinguished before we could reach the house. I called loudly to the landlord to let me in. I rapped on the door desperately, and repeated my yells. A dog in the house barked savagely. Then Mac began to bray, and I wondered that nobody entered a protest against such a disturbance. At length a squeaky female voice called from an upstairs window. Who be ye? A man, I answered civilly. What kind of a man? A gentleman, I said with emphasis. What's that thing you got with ye? I was afraid she'd catch cold in the opened window if she was in her nightdress, but I replied in a voice of a siren, A jackass. Can't let ye in. No rooms for shows here. Next town. Fell the frozen words on my benumbed ears. Then the woman sneezed and closed the window. Mac Aroni seemed to comprehend the situation, but offered no remedy. I would have covered the three miles to Pittsford, but the donkey was fagged out and could barely drag his legs. Where were we to find shelter at such a time and place? Retracing our steps a short distance, I caught the sound of pounding, as of a hammer. Soon I heard the sawing of a board, and the saw's enraged voice when it struck a knot. Saved, I thought, as I walked in the direction whence the sound emanated. The snow lay ten inches deep. Old Boreas shook the trees and whistled round the quivering hovels, and I was so chilled and vexed that, if another person had dared to ask me what kind of a man I was, I would have measured somebody for a coffin. Finally I came to the house, through whose window I discerned a lighted candle in a back room. I rapped on the door. The sawing continued. So did my rapping. Then the sawing ceased, and the door was opened by a swarthy, heavily bearded man, who extended me a kindly, "'Good evening.' I introduced myself and pleaded my case. Come in where it's warm, he said. 
and following him to the stove, I explained my situation. We ain't got much accommodation for you, he apologized, but I can't leave you and your pet out in the cold. This is my wife, and the man introduced me. Then he censured the landlady of the tavern for not admitting me, saying she ought to have her license revoked. If you'd been a loafing vagabond and drunkard, she'd have taken you in quick enough, said my sympathetic host. But as you was a gentleman, she was embarrassed to know how to treat you. From which I gathered that he did know how, and would prove it. He explained that the front part of the building was a store. The rear portion was divided into two small rooms, a kitchen and a sleeping room. The second floor was utilized as a hayloft, wherein was stored Hungarian hay for his horse, which he said he kept in a shed across the road yonder. Now if you'll lend me a hand, he suggested, we'll make room for your mule in the shed, and my wife will get you something to eat. Then we'll see where we can tuck you comfortable till morning. I pulled on my mittens and followed the man into the biting wind with a warmer and cheerier heart, and acquainting Mac with the good news, proceeded to assist my host to transfer a huge woodpile in order to obtain the side of a hen roost lying underneath it, with which to construct a partition in the shed to preserve peace between the horse and donkey. By one o'clock Mac was stabled, and I in prime condition to enjoy any kind of a meal. The good wife had fried me three eggs and brewed me a pot of tea, and sawed off several slices of homemade bread, for which I blessed her in my heart, and paid her a compliment by eating it all. The repast over, I chatted a while with my friends and smoked, then said if they were ready to retire, I was. A roughly made staircase reached from the kitchen floor over the cook stove to a trap door in the ceiling, and up those stairs I followed my host, he with candle in hand, I with a quilt which I feared the kind people had robbed from their own bed. Great gaps yawned in the roof and sides of the loft, through which the wind whistled coldly. The hay was covered with snow in places, and the thermometer must have been far below zero. But I stuck my legs in the hay and pulled a woolen nightshirt over my traveling clothes and tucked the quilt round my body and put on my hat and earlaps and soon was as snug as a bug in a rug and slept soundly. I rose early with the family, joined them at breakfast, paid my host liberally, and started with Mac for Pittsford. There we were welcomed by a party of young men who had expected to give us a fitting reception the evening before. They claimed that, had they known where we were, they would have rescued us with a bobsleigh. I did not tarry with them, but tramped on to Rochester, and arrived there at 3.30 p.m., having covered 35 miles since the previous morning. We spent two days in the Flower City. An old business acquaintance arranged for Mac Aroni to pose in the show window of a clothing store, for which I received five dollars. Although it was dreadfully cold and the wind blew a gale, Mac attracted every pedestrian on the street. I called on Rattlesnake Pete, the proprietor of a well-known curiosity shop, who wanted to buy my bullet-riddled hat, but I declined to part with it at any reasonable price. Then I called on the mayor. He received me cordially, laughed when I related my adventures, and subscribed to my book. 
Rochester is the seat of a theological seminary and several breweries. Nearby is the celebrated Genesee Falls, where Sam Patch leaped to his death. Many old friends called on me during my sojourn, among them a physician who gave me a neat little case of medicines, such as he believed would be most needed in emergency on such a journey. And while being entertained at a club, I was presented with a fine sombrero. In spite of the frigid gale which had been raging three days, and of the dire predictions of the Western Union bulletins, I started with Mac for Spencerport at 12.30 right after lunch. The village lay twelve miles distant. The biting wind swept across the level meadows laden with icy dust from the frozen crust of the snow and cut into our faces. Five times were Mac and I welcomed into houses too warm, but we reached the village an hour and a half after dark with only my ears frostbitten and soon were comfortably quartered for the night. Next morning we started for Brockport, eight miles further on, by the towpath which we followed. The wind was blowing forty miles an hour, and the mercury fell below zero. Every now and then we had to turn our backs to the gale to catch our breath. Mac's face was literally encased in ice. I rubbed my ears and cheeks constantly to prevent their freezing. Only two or three sleighs were out, and the drivers of these were wrapped so thoroughly in robes and mufflers that he could not distinguish male from female. Still, determined not to retreat to town, I urged my little thoroughbred on, and soon we were called into a house and permitted to thaw out. On this occasion Mac, to his own astonishment as well as that of the kind lady of the house, stuck his frosted snoot into a pot of boiling beans on the stove, for which unprecedented behavior I duly apologized. Eight more times both of us were taken into hospitable homes and inns to warm before reaching Brockport at eight in the evening, more dead than alive. My nose and ears were now frostbitten. The townspeople, hearing of our arrival, flocked into the hotel to chat with me or went to the stable to see Mac Aroni. Wednesday I resumed the journey, resolved that nothing save physical incapacity should deter me. Now was the time to harden myself to exposure and prepare me for greater trials later on. But before leaving I purchased a small hand sled and improvised rope traces by which Mac could draw my luggage instead of carrying it. Besides, this novel sort of vehicle would attract attention. I realized we must depend for a living more upon sensation than upon our virtues. The next thing essential was a collar for the donkey, and I had to make it. But to make the stubborn beast understand that I wished him to draw the sled, that he wasn't hitched to stand, was the greatest difficulty I had. Finally he caught on and marched along through the streets quite respectably. Beyond the town we met with some deep snowdrifts lying across the road, and Mac's little legs would get stuck, or he would pretend they were, and I would have to dig the fellow out with my rifle. Again, while leading the stubborn animal, in order to make better time in the opposing wind, I would suddenly hear a grating, scraping sound to the rear, and looking around would find the sled overturned with its burden. 
After several such upsets I cut a bough from a tree, whittled a toothpick point to it, and prodded Mac to proper speed while I walked behind, and with a string steadied the top-heavy load of freight. Then, this difficulty remedied, Mac, with seeming rascality, would cross and recross the ridge of ice and snow in the center of the road, as if he couldn't make up his mind which of the beaten tracks to follow, or dislike the monotony of a single trail, every time upsetting the sled. During that long and frigid day's tramp, but one human being passed me, and he was in a sleigh. He recognized my outfit, for he called to me encouragingly, Stick to it, Pod. You'll win yet. Late in the afternoon, a man hailed me from the door of a farmhouse. Come in and warm, and have a drink of cider. Now, if there was one thing in the world that tickled my palate, it was sweet cider, and I accepted a glass. Wouldn't your pard have a drink? asked the generous man. Presume he would if you offered it, I replied. I never knew him to refuse any kind of a beverage, though this cider is pretty hard. The farmer brought out a milk pan, and that donkey drained the pan. Shall I give him some more? asked the big-hearted soul. Max stuck out his nose in mute response, so I said yes, provided he would not be robbing himself. It would probably put new vigor in the fatigued animal, and superinduce more speed. Got barrels of it, friend, barrels of it, said the good Samaritan, who refilled the pan which Mac again drained. Then, thanking the farmer, I steered my donkey on over the ice-bound highway. We had not proceeded a mile when I observed that Mac did not walk as firmly as he had. His course was decidedly zigzag. Finally, I left my station at the sled and guided him by the bit. Now he staggered more than ever. Then it dawned on me that the cider had gone to his head. In less than five minutes more I regretted having met that liberal-hearted farmer, possessing barrels of hard cider. Suddenly the drunken donkey fell down in the snow, and instead of attempting to rise he tried to stand on his head. Not succeeding in that, he made an effort to sit up and toppled over backwards. All this time he brayed ecstatically, as if in the seventh heaven. Next he began to roll, and tangled himself in the rope traces, and tumbled the sled and gladstone bag about the snow as though it were rubbish. Fearing lest he would break my rifle and cameras, I tried to unbuckle them from the saddle while the scapegrace was in the throes of delirium tremens, and got tangled up with him in the ropes. In trying to free myself, I was accidentally kicked over in the snow, and in that ridiculous and awkward fix, I was found by a jovial farmer who drove up in a sleigh. He soon helped me out of my scrape and laughed me into good humor, kindly consenting to take charge of my luggage and send a bobsleigh after the drunkard as soon as he reached his house a mile beyond. There I waited for the relief committee and the wrecking sleigh to arrive. To say I was the maddest of mortals doesn't half express it. At length, two strong men, with my help, succeeded in depositing Mac on the bob, and he was conveyed to the barn, and there placed behind the barn, bedded and fed, and left to sober up, while I, his outraged master, was hospitably entertained overnight by my charitable benefactor. 
We were now at Rich's Corners, some four miles from Albion. My good host provided me with such warm apparel as I hadn't with me, and when bedtime came, I was trundled into a downy bed where I dreamed all night about drunken jackasses. By breakfast time I had recovered my good spirits. I insisted on baking the buckwheat cakes, and not until all the family were apparently filled with the flapjacks which I tossed in the air to their amusement did I sit down to the table to eat. Breakfast over, I joined my host in a smoke, then donned my wraps for the day's journey. When we men returned from the barn with the reformed donkey, a number of the neighboring farmers had assembled with their families on the porch to see the overland pilgrims. I snapped my camera on the group and said, Go on, Mac, to my remorseful partner, and soon was plodding toward Albion. End of chapter 9 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina